0: through His Word. And so we anticipate His activity in all this, and it's a privilege to be able to serve in this way, and I uh, recognize my need for His grace. So shortly, uh, we're going to pray, but uh, before we do that, as we're going through this series, we're just starting in 2 Corinthians. And, and so last week, we looked earlier in chapter 1, and, and we saw um, Paul, as he starts this letter, uh, in his introduction, right away, kind of goes right after the, the main issue, that it's in our weakness that we learn God's strength. And so he tells his own story in that, and his own experience of how uh, for him and really for all of us, it's in the darkest moments of life that God works in our lives to teach us not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So it's in our darkest moments, in our moments of weakness and struggle, that we find the greatest strength. That's the truth of this whole letter And so Paul right away starts into that. And now what's going to happen is he's going to start to transition to some of the specific issues with the church in Corinth. And there are things that are going on with them in terms of how they view Paul and how they view Christian leadership. And really with that, how they view Christianity. That they have a view of Christianity that it needs to be victorious and triumphal in every way, that that it needs to be strong Uh, And there's really no place for weakness. There's no functional doctrine of weakness for some of the Corinthians. And so Paul has to correct that. And part of the particular issue is their critique of him. So we're going to find in this section that he's going to enter into that specific. Uh, He's going to transition and and address some uh, some of the ways that he was accused of being weak and therefore a disqualified leader. Because that's really what's behind it. They're saying you're weak and therefore you're disqualified. And Paul's trying to help them to understand that, well, that's just not how it works. Um, They accuse him here uh, in this lesson of vacillating. And it reminds me, uh, as far as an illustration, I don't know if uh, you guys remember the 2004 presidential election. And I don't know if you remember uh, the term flip-flop that was used so effectively back then uh, by the Republicans against the Democratic candidate John Kerry. And just by the way, kind of side notice here. Uh, public service announcement so you know uh, I'm going to use this illustration but it we have a strict non-partisan approach as pastors especially in the pulpit Uh, we don't endorse candidates or parties um, and we don't address political issues unless there's a clear moral issue involved a clear biblical issue so this is not an advertisement for any party or person but it's a good illustration of what happened uh, in Paul's life here so back in 2004 I don't know if you remember But Senator John Kerry, he was the Democratic candidate for president, and he was in an appearance at Marshall University, and he tried to explain his vote for financing uh, the the operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And what he said in trying to explain that, uh, and this was an issue that was unpopular among his constituents, he famously said, I actually did vote for the $87 billion before I voted against it. Now, of course, in the political world, That's Something like that's going to be taken advantage of. This apparent indecisiveness was leveraged in the the political (coughs) campaign against him, and uh, at the 2004 Republican National Convention, they held up footwear, flip-flops, and that was part of the campaign. Well, um, Paul is experiencing the same thing in this section. Basically, some of the Corinthians are holding up flip-flops and saying, this guy should not be in charge uh, in any way. That's what's going on. So Paul is going to address that in this section of Scripture. He's going to address them in many different ways. And along the way, as we watch him do that, we're going to learn some key things about the Christian life and about Christian maturity. And things that we really need to hear about how it's in our weakness that we are strong. So let's pray and ask God to speak to us through His Word this morning. Lord, we thank You. We thank You for this section of Scripture And we thank You for the truths that are in it. And Lord, You, in Your design, giving us the Bible, uh, it's not random. Uh, It's purposeful. And every bit is intended to produce good things, to produce worship of You, to produce a a fresh awareness of our need for Your grace and Your goodness, to produce um, in us more and more uh, a life that looks like Jesus' life. So thank You. Uh, We need You. We need Your grace. And so I ask, Lord, help me. And help us to hear from You, Lord, that we would be changed by Your Word. Help me to teach well. Uh, Help me to do it in such a way that I can serve You, our great God, and Your people who You love so much. Um, Speak to us, we pray. Touch each one here, we ask. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. Starting in chapter 1, verse 12, and then heading to the end of the chapter, Paul says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity, And Godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say, yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put His seal on us and given us His spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. God's word from Second Corinthians 1:12 through24. We learn in this section that Christian leadership and really Christian maturity isn't about being all-knowing or all-powerful, but it's characterized by simple, sincere, and straightforward proclamation in word and deed of the glories of God in Christ. Christian leadership isn't about being uh, all-powerful and having it all together, but simply pointing to the One who does. Paul says basically it's simple Christ-centered leadership and nothing more. That's the point here. And So let's go through the storyline uh, of this section and learn these lessons as we go. So first I want to talk about this accusation that's against Paul. So the, there's, it's, we see it throughout the section. We'll kind of be moving around the section. First the accusation in verses 15 and 16. As you look there, Paul is speaking of... Uh, what had gone on, what he wanted to do, some of the background. So they're accusing him of vacillating in his plan. So we can look at the plans. In verses 15 and 16, he says, uh, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. Paul had been with them for 18 months, about two years previously. And he had been there, and he and his team, and God had used them to proclaim the Gospel. Lives had been transformed, uh, probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of people. There was a new church that started. There was new life and wonderful things going on. Uh, powerful experiences of the Holy Spirit. So he was with them and they had experienced the grace that comes to us through Christ. And so this is a couple years later. He's gone, gone back to his home church of Antioch and then he comes back for another missionary trip with his team. He goes through Asia Minor to Ephesus. And, and he, in all this now he's saying that he wanted to go to Corinth and bring them a second experience of grace. So his intention was to be with them again. And just to help them and to see them experience God and and grow. So he said, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. If we could put up the little diagram uh, that's there next. Uh, For some of you, this is going to help you. For others, it's going to confuse you. So if it confuses you, just ignore it and listen. Um, But what I want to do, these are the different plans that Paul made. And so some of the background to the accusation against him was, you know, you kept on making plans and changing them. And yes, as you read, it's true. He makes plans and he changes them. So the first plan he had uh, is actually the one that he's talking about here in section uh, chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians is plan B. So he said, I wanted to come visit you. So that's start from E as Ephesus, go across the, the, uh, the uh, C there, and go visit Corinth, and then go to Macedonia, which was north of Corinth, come back to Corinth, and then go to Judea. That's his original, his plan here actually. So this is what I, he says, I want to visit you have, so you can have a second experience of grace. Then I want to go to Macedonia, which is just north of you. Then come back to you. And then I want to go to Jerusalem. That's what it, his, his plan here. Uh, and so he's reiterating that. This is what I wanted to do. And it was for this, this purpose of a second experience of grace. He had an earlier plan though too. Plan A on the chart. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 16, at the end of 1 Corinthians where he wrote this letter, um, he has a different plan. And he says, There, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Uh, For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. So, at the end of 1 Corinthians, he has a different plan. That's plan A. Just so you know kind of how the chronology goes, uh, Paul has come back on this third missionary journey. So he had been to Corinth. Two years later, he comes back to Ephesus. And then he's saying all these things from Ephesus. All right, he comes back to Ephesus and he starts to hear about things in Corinth and he knows that there's trouble. And so what he does is he first he writes a letter, um, a short letter to help them. He sends that to them. Um, that has some effect, but it brings some confusion. So then he writes another letter. That letter is called 1 Corinthians by us. It's actually the second letter in, in what Paul has written. But anyhow, we'll stick, call it 1 Corinthians. All right. And then um, that kind of helps, but, but it doesn't help entirely. And so he actually makes a visit to them. Another visit. We're going to talk about that. And things don't go well. It's called a painful visit. Um, and, and then he goes back to... Ephesus. And then he writes another short letter. It's called the painful letter. And it actually produces some changes there. And then, uh, and then he moves to Macedonia and he writes 2 Corinthians. So he's, he's on his way really to Corinth when he writes 2nd Corinthians. So this is all happening. These are all the plans that are going on. So he first says plan A in 1st Corinthians, I want to go to Macedonia, come to you and then go to Jerusalem. And he's saying I want, I, I'm looking forward to being with you guys and there's a collection of that they're, they're gathering for the church in Jerusalem. So he's going to come to them, and then they're going to send them to Jerusalem with his team to bring that gift. So that's the first plan. Then plan B, is we just read in 2 Corinthians 1. All right. And then what actually is happening is the third one. The actual travel plan is that he went there for the painful visit, came back, wrote the letters in between, and now he's going to Macedonia. He's sending a letter to them, and he's going to go visit them. That's the background here. Now, that may all be confusing, and that's okay, because the point isn't to try to, to try to figure out how all the plans work. It's to understand that there were actual plans that got changed by Paul. That's the background, and that was the grounds of their accusation against Paul. That basically you're vacillating. You you say one thing and you do another. What's the deal? Um, it's the basis of their attack. So Paul in verse seventeen kind of reiterates what they're saying. He says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? So he's kind of reiterating what they were saying. And it's likely that they were using Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5.37 where Jesus says, "Uh, don't take oaths, don't make oaths, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. And they were taking that and were saying, this guy, his yes is no and his no is yes. He changes his plans. Who wants to follow a guy like this? And, and so he's accused of flip-flopping. Um, and, and yet, it's important to, to notice that Paul is not making any oaths in his plans here. Matter of fact, it, in one context, he says, if the Lord permits, right? So there's no oath. There's no I will. I'm going to do plan A it's the, if it's the last thing I do. I know it's plan A. He, doesn't, he never does that. He never presents it like he's infallible in his plans. Um, he's never... He's never saying that he knows. And he lives in a world where travel plans are way more difficult than they are today. They're difficult enough today. You can say, you know, I'm flying to California tomorrow. You could go to, the, go to Logan Airport and you could find that your flight is canceled, right? You have no control over that. So you have to tell your friends, I was planning on it. You know, are they going to be like, hey, what's up with you? Yes, yes, no, no. They're going to be like, hey, that's how it goes. You know, flights get canceled. They lived in a day where they didn't have airplanes. And they had ships and ships... Went through storms and they sunk. And there were roads and you could get robbed on the road. There were all sorts of things that could go on. And not only that, but communication was difficult, right? They, didn't, they couldn't text, you know, hey, flight's delayed. I'll, I'll be there two hours later. You know, you had to send a letter and it took, you know, a week to get there and then a week to get back. Um, you know, that's how it was. So there's a, a context that, that should be understood. But the problem is, uh, there's background here going on that I think twists things. And so, people are basically, they have an agenda against Paul. Something's gone on. We don't know all that's gone on. But they have an agenda against Paul. And so they're grabbing a hold of something that they can use as leverage against him. Things get twisted. When people have an agenda, when, when they get poisoned somehow, we don't know what went on, but somehow people got poisoned against Paul. It twists things. When we let things creep into our lives, maybe bitterness or jealousy, unforgiveness or selfish ambition or whatever it might be, any sort of worldly thing that creeps in and starts to take over, it, it works in such a way that we can twist things. And that's what's going on here. I think it's obvious just looking at this ridiculous expectation that Paul would be omnicompetent in his travel plans. That somehow he could, you know, speak and it would happen. That he's That he's got himself in this. No, uh, he's not. And he's not presenting himself this way. And his reply in here, you'll see, is he's not going to point to his own ability to make plans or not. He's going to point to Jesus. And he's going to explain what his motivations were or what was going on. And in this whole letter, he's going to say, look, I'm weak, but he's strong. That's the answer here. But But it's important, I think, just to back up a little bit and just watch how things are working in this relationship and to recognize that they have these unreasonable ridiculous expectations of Paul because there's some sort of bitterness or poison in the relationship and it twists things and and just observing that I think is helpful to us because we can kind of think of our own lives and think of our own temptations and struggles and realize lord I don't want to do that it's no wonder that in hebrews it says chapter 12 verse 15 put this verse up please it says see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of god that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many become defiled. So don't miss the grace of God. Don't miss the fact that you've been forgiven for so much. And you can live in that forgiveness, receive it, and extend it to others. Don't miss that. Don't fail to live in that. Don't fail to live it in every situation. Because otherwise, what may happen is you'll see a root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble and defile many. It'll be this poison that, that seeps in and seeps into your relationships and seeps into how you relate to others. It can happen. And it can happen over the silliest things. I've told this story before. Maybe some of you weren't here when I told it. In the 1890's, there was a small Baptist church in western Kentucky, Mayfield County, Kentucky. The church had just two deacons and then one pastor. And these two men seemed to be constantly arguing and bickering. Uh, Over everything. On one particular Sunday, one of the deacons put up a small wooden peg on the back wall so the pastor, when he came in, could hang his hat there. When the other deacon came in, discovered the peg, he was outraged. How dare someone put a peg in the wall without first consulting me? The people in the church took sides with the different deacons over the peg at the back of the room. It eventually split the church into two separate churches. And for up to a hundred years later, the two churches were known as Peg Baptist Church and Anti Peg Baptist Church. Let's make sure those things don't happen. Let's remember that our biggest issue isn't where we hang the hat or not. The biggest issue isn't whether plan A or plan B or plan C was followed. That is not our biggest issue. Our biggest issue, actually, is that we stand before a holy, perfectly good and just God as those who have fallen short of His right command to love one another and to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's our biggest issue. There's nothing else that compares with that issue. He's the Creator of all. He is good, and, and we are all accountable to Him. And our biggest issue is that on our own two feet, we cannot stand before Him. And yet, in His amazing mercy, His amazing compassion and care, His amazing love for us individually even, He sent His only Son to live the righteous life that we were supposed to live. And then die the death that we deserve to die for our rebellion against Him. Jesus came as our substitute in all these ways in His love for us. And in His love for the Father. He died on the cross, bore our sins, paid for them in full, and rose again on the third day. Victorious over sin and death. And when you come to Him and put your faith in Him, you belong to Him, you are forgiven, you're safe, and your biggest issue by far that you could ever have in life is fully and finally taken care of. And so all these other things, they just don't matter all that much, do they? Travel plans. Pegs at the back of the church. Whatever it might be, it might be more significant than those things. They just don't matter. When you get the grace of God, bitterness can't come in and poison and twist and get us so we're starting to say, who, who is this guy? He makes plans and he does other things out with him, in with another. That's the issue here that's going on, and the lesson, one of the many lessons we have from this section. Well let's continue this sort of perspective is really what drove Paul. And so if you look at how he responds here, you'll see the grace of God and the gospel of God shaping him. and, and his attitude towards them, even as they're accusing him, is to come back with the grace of God. And so, in verse 12, he says, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And supremely so towards you. Guys, we're not campaigning to you know, be these great leaders. We're not, we're not you know, living that way. We're not living worldly ways. We're not you know, being leaders who appear to have it all together. We don't depend on some great communication strategy and polish and presentation and all these things. We're not setting ourselves up as leaders who are, who are omnicompetent and perfect. No, we are simply, in an honest way, presenting the truth. Sincere, simple, coming to you straightforward. That's who we are. Because the grace of God has informed us and in how we think of ourselves and how we think of our mission as leaders and as cr- mature Christians. And so we're not presenting ourselves. we're presenting Jesus. That's our job. And we're presenting ourselves in weakness. We're not afraid to face our weakness, and be honest with that. There's no tricks here. There's no like reading between the lines. We, we are basically presenting things in a straightforward way. So he, he says, he talks about what they have read, what they've seen, there's nothing different uh, in what they're doing. He's, uh, as he talks about it, verse 13. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read or understand, and I hope you will fully understand. You can read about it in the letters I've sent you. You can see it in our lives. Simple, sincere, straightforward. That's, that's how we're presenting ourselves because our faith is not in ourselves, but in Christ. And so in verses 19 and 20, in line with this, he talks about this. So you guys are saying I do yes, yes, and no, no, but, but you know what? That's not what we do. We present the One in whom it is always yes. That's our job. And we've been faithful in presenting Him who always says yes. So there's, there is one thing that we don't do yes, no on. We don't change plans on. It's presenting the One who, in whom is all, are all the promises of God yes and amen. So he's pointing to Jesus here. Pointing to Jesus as the faultless One. The only One who makes plans and accomplishes them who says this will be done and it gets done. Who, who followed through and accomplished what no one else could accomplish. And, and so in Him, in, in Jesus, it is always yes, it says in verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. It is always yes in Jesus. There's no vacillating with Jesus. There's no change of plans. There's only faithfulness. And all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Him. All the promises. And we could take a long time to look at all those promises. There's promises from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve, or the first humans, had fallen in sin, right away, there was a promise that the you'll crush the head of of Satan. He will attack the heel. Jesus was the one who did that in dying on the cross. He fulfilled that promise. So that very first promise right there. uh, Then throughout Scripture, the promise to Abraham to to bless all the nations. uh, To be a blessing to all the earth. That's fulfilled in Jesus who came to die on the cross for all the nations. That through His death and through His people living in and proclaiming His good news, all the nations would be blessed. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. And the promise of God, the implicit promise of God, and the commission given to Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it and extend the presence of God to all the earth, that is yes and amen in Jesus too. It's happening now through the church as the church lives and is to live in every community, extending the kingdom of God as we believe and obey. And then one day, Jesus will finish it when He returns. And the reign of God will be over all of creation. That mandate will be fulfilled because of Jesus. All the promises in Jesus are yes and amen. And as a result, the Corinthians and Paul and all of us along with them utter our amen to God for His glory. Interesting that Paul is pointing to Jesus in all this. And saying, that's the one we stand on. And 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 as far as that goes, we have never vacillated. We have never flip-flopped on Jesus. Our main job as, as church planters and apostles, and really for us as believers as well, is to testify and live by that truth. And there's to be no flip-flopping there. And so Paul's saying that that we have been consistent with that. You've never heard anything different from us. And then he points out in this too, in this whole section as he's answering this charge, as you follow down through verses uh, twenty-one and following. I think we have these to follow up above as well. And he says, "And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit. So we're not those that are just weak in the sense that we have, we're just incompetent, and every now and then we get it right." He's saying, no, as believers, we've been established. Along with you, Paul's saying. You know, Our team with you guys in Corinth. He's established us in Jesus. We experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. This anointing. He's put a seal on us and He's given His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So, so there is power and authority and fruitfulness as a result. And certainly with Paul as a called apostle, there's something very substantial about the work of the Holy Spirit in him that ought to be respected more by the Corinthians. So he's both encouraging them but also pointing out, don't just kind of lightly accuse a believer who is a vessel of the Holy Spirit of these things, and certainly not an apostle. So in all this, he's helping them to understand just the perspective. It's about Jesus. And it's about our faithfulness with Jesus. That's the thing we don't flip-flop on. All these other things, we're not trying to say we're, we're perfect in those things. We, we don't Our plans, we can't control those things. Now, there is real purpose in the plans, and he's going to get into that. He's going to explain it. And I'll touch on that a little bit later. But it should be understood. He is faithful and fruitful in the proclamation of the Gospel. But he's a weak man. And not to be relied upon in every way, because he's human. When I was a, a fairly young believer, I attended uh, a church in Newton Mass, Second Baptist Church, it's still there to this day. the building is there, and still an active congregation. Uh, and I was a new believer, and it was, I just remember, actually, vividly, sitting there and hearing the word of God proclaimed by the pastor. Uh, this pastor was a wonderful man. He was an older man. Uh, I think he had actually retired and then come back to pastor this church, uh, Godly full of wisdom, uh, faithful to the Word. And as a, as a believer, and especially as a new believer, I just like, was soaking it in. I just loved it. Uh, and, and hearing from him, and, and got some time to interact with him as well. Just a gentleman, man. Uh, faithful. Bold too, when he needed to say things. He was just, it was a wonderful picture of a mature and godly Christian and, and a pastor. Uh, and as far as his knowledge of the Word, he was excellent. He was... Um, a guy that you could go to for solid counsel of the Word and for life. And, and he was just very fruitful. He was a remarkable man. What actually made him even more remarkable is he was blind. He couldn't see. And, and his wife would have to lead him around, I remember, like through the church, um, and drive him and, and help him. He would preach from a Braille Bible. It was amazing. He was quite a remarkable man. I respected him greatly. But I never asked him to drive my car. And I never expected him to. His weakness was not having sight. Physical sight. And I understood that implicitly. But when it came to faithfulness to the Gospel, he was outstanding. And faithfulness to the Word, he was outstanding. That's what Paul's getting at here. We don't look to people, any human, except for Jesus, to be faultless. We understand we're weak, but there is a Gospel that is true and strong and and leaders certainly are called to be faithful in that. But God uses weak people to do powerful things. And so let me ask you in this point, how about you? Do you hold reasonable expectations for others? Do you hold reasonable expectations for others? Certainly, the first application is for leaders to understand That church leaders are weak. They're called to be strong in certain ways, and they have to be by grace. But in many ways, they're weak. Do we hold reasonable expectations? Do we hold reasonable expectations for those maybe in authority over our lives in some ways? I think of uh, teenagers with parents. You're growing and you're starting to realize, okay, they're just human like I am. Are you holding that in a reasonable way where you respect their authority and where they're called to to be an authority? But you know that they're weak and and that doesn't diminish your respect and your desire to support them. How about for yourself? Do you hold reasonable expectations for yourself to realize that you're weak? Only God is strong. And yes, He will use you to do powerful things by His grace, but not in every way and at all times. You get really mad at yourself when you fail in some small way. Maybe you need to understand these truths in 2 Corinthians more and live in light of them. Final point, Paul's goal and all this. It's just interesting to read through and see his heart and see what he's after. He was a man actually of great authority and he, he had experienced some amazing things. He had reason to be very confident of himself and, and to even... Uh, deal harshly with the Corinthians if he so choose. I mean, he's a man he had personally seen and interacted with the risen Christ himself. I mean, Jesus, just like the, the twelve, he had, he had interacted with the risen Christ. He had seen the risen Christ. He had ascended to the third heaven. And, and the third heaven just basically means it's the throne room of God where God dwells with, with the saints and angels in, in glory. He had ascended there and Been part of what was going on. And he says later, he he heard things that he can't repeat. And man, I just what were those things? They must have been amazing. He heard amazing things. He's not allowed to repeat. And so he's had these revelations and this experience. He's seen Jesus. He's walked in amazing authority. He's driven out demons. He's led thousands to Christ. When there was one guy who opposed him vehemently as an enemy of God, he spoke a word and the man was blinded. I mean, this is Paul. Great power. Great authority. And yet, if you look through the paragraph, you don't see him asserting that authority in that way, do you? He's gentle. He's patient. He's amazingly humble. And, and so he talks about it in verse 14. We just go through these verses. I think we have them up. Uh, verse 14, he wants to boast of the Corinthians on the final day. He's looking forward. He's not boasting about himself. Hey, I saw, I saw Jesus face to face. You better follow me. Stop being ridiculous about these plans. I'm the one who saw Jesus. No, I'm looking forward to boasting of you. I love you guys. And I'm going to boast of you on that final day. That's my goal. Um, he wants to be with them. Why? To, to rebuke them for what they're doing? Their disrespect? No. He wants them to have a second experience of grace. He wants to be with them to bless them. And, and, and even the painful visit where He's there, He left. He left when He could have stayed and and kicked butt and taken names, but He didn't. He left so that it could settle down and there would be a gentle repentance response later that would come. He responds to these ridiculous accusations about His plans with what? A proclamation of the good news in Jesus. He blesses when He's attacked. He tells them in verse uh, twenty he's not interested in domineering their faith. He wants to work with them. Interesting. I want to work with you. Why? For your joy. I want to see joy in your life. That's what I'm after. And then he affirms their stance in Jesus when he could have disputed it in verse 24. So it's just interesting to see all this woven through this whole response when when they've come after him with this ridiculous and really nasty accusation. How does he respond? Graciously humbly it's amazing now if you know the story of paul he wasn't always that way formerly he had been very judgmental he had been very self-righteous and even violent and had been part of killing people in the name of his own version of biblical faith but god in his great mercy rescued paul and he was changed and humbled and as a result he could not help continuing to proclaim the wonderful grace of God, and he, and he continued to remember who he was, and to continue to motivate him, having received the grace of God, even though he was a persecutor and violent, he couldn't help but in that ex- extend the same grace to others. He saw himself differently because of the grace of God. And so he says in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. That's how Paul sees himself. I'm the foremost. I I persecuted. I did all these things. And I think in in our own view, each of us should probably say the same thing. I'm the foremost sinner I know. Because I know my heart more than I know anyone else's heart. And when I look around at other people, even when they're accusing me, I don't see like, oh, what a bad sinner. I see this sinner has been forgiven and rescued, and now is loved, and called a a son, a child of God, and so I must extend to that accuser the same sort of grace. This truth empowered him to love others and to show them mercy when they didn't deserve it. If you really get mercy, if you really get mercy and grace, you'll not only receive it, you'll extend it. And that's what maturity looks like. You'll live in it yourself, being honest with your weaknesses and your lack, unafraid to address them and even reveal them. And you'll be eager and constant in extending the same mercy and grace to others. That's what Paul does here. He exemplifies what he says later to Timothy. He says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's, That's what Christian maturity looks like. That's what it looks like when the Gospel has gotten a hold of our hearts. It's incredible strength, isn't it? In weakness. It's grace and love in return for insult and rancor. It's simple and faithful Gospel proclamation living in a world that demands performance, polish, and perfection. And all of us are called to this. And it only comes by His power. And that's where I want to finish before we transition. It only comes by His power. And if you're like me, you know, I can't do this on my own. I can't generate this. As much as I even study the good news of Christ apart from God's power and kind of taking it from concept to reality in my heart, I can't do this. And so I just want to take a minute right now actually and just ask for God's power. And so I would ask, uh, you don't have to do this, but if you just want to close your eyes, if you'd like just to receive power to live this way more so, to know mercy and grace more so in your own life, apply it to your own life even more deeply and extend it to others. And you know you can't do it on your own. Why don't you just pray with me? You can just close your eyes. Maybe open your hands up. Whatever posture helps you. Uh, you don't have to do this. I don't want to force you to, but I also want to invite you to do this just to pray with me. We're just going to ask for help and grace. Lord God, it's amazing to look through this section and watch Paul's response when he's accused so unjustly. And it's a message for us and a reminder of the wonder of grace and its work. We thank You, Jesus, for what You have done. That You shed Your very blood for our sins. Your, Your grace and mercy to us is beyond measure. And when we understand this, we can live honestly ourselves and we can extend grace to others. Thank You. But we need Your power to get this. So I ask You, our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would You, even right now, Visit us here and give us fresh power this morning to grasp Your amazing grace and mercy. And fresh power this morning to willingly and even eagerly extend it to others. We thank You that You hear us when we pray and we know when we pray according to Your Word, You are glad to answer. So it is our expectation for you to move in our own hearts and renew and refresh us in these things this morning and empower us. We thank you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.